0: Welcome to our coverage of the Kim Potter manslaughter trial over the April 11th, 2021 shooting death of Dante Wright in a suburb of Minneapolis, when then police officer Potter accidentally used her Glock 17 pistol in place of her intended taser. Today was the sixth day of the trial proper and was most notable for a powerful cross-examination of use of force trainer Sergeant Mike Peterson by attorney Paul Eng. And for the full testimony of the state's hired use of force expert witness, Professor Seth Stoughton, who some of you will recall testified for the same prosecutors in the Derek Chauvin trial. Unfortunately, attorney Earl Gray did a poorer than expected job of cross-examination of this state's expert witness. It also seems likely that the state will rest its case in chief tomorrow and that the defense will begin to call their own witnesses and present their narrative to the jury for the first time in this trial. Before I jump into things, I do want to briefly mention an exceptional opportunity for your consideration. Perhaps once every 12 or 18 months, we do one of our full-day Law of Self-Defense advanced classes. This is a full-day class. It's the equivalent of a law school seminar on self-defense law, applicable to all 50 states and taught in my usual plain English style without any confusing legalese. This class is taught live by me, streamed to you at your computer using Zoom, and there's plenty of opportunity for live q a with me during the class. On the rare occasions when we do one of our Law of Self-Defense advanced classes, they invariably fill up almost immediately after we announce the date, and we've announced the date for this one. It's taking place on Saturday, January 8th, 2022. If you've ever wanted a true mastery of the Law of Self-Defense, here's the best, really among the only, opportunities to grab that expertise with both hands. Seats are already going fast, so if you're at all interested, I urge you to grab your slot today at lawofselfdefense.com slash Advanced. So the first witness of today was Sergeant Mike Peterson, the Brooklyn Center Police Department use-of-force trainer. This was the cross-examination of Sergeant Mike Peterson. Uh, It was conducted by Attorney Paul Eng. Peterson had provided his direct testimony in a lengthy, perhaps a couple of hours, questioning by Assistant DA Matthew Frank yesterday afternoon. That direct questioning had been a bit like pulling teeth, with Frank asking explicitly leading questions, and Peterson largely limited to answering yes or no. Leading questions are not normally allowed during direct questioning. I expected the defense to do a great job on their cross-examination of Peterson, who was clearly favorably disposed towards defendant Potter, and I was not mistaken in this expectation. Ang had Peterson affirm that police officers have dangerous jobs, deal with dangerous and unpredictable people, and have to make life and death decisions in split seconds. Officers have to respond to rapidly changing events and make decisions quickly, and they are provided with the discretion to do so. Peterson affirmed that Potter was an attentive use-of-force student who attended all her training and that as an FTO, she had many more duties than would an officer just working alone. The jury was reminded that Potter's Taser 7 was new to her, received only a couple of weeks prior to her encounter with Wright, and differed in certain characteristics from her prior model Taser, most particularly in having far more black surfaces and far fewer yellow surfaces than her prior Taser. On a couple of occasions, Eng asked about Potter's gun, when he clearly actually meant taser, quickly correcting himself, but the subtle mistake emphasized the mental possibility for confusing the two weapons. Also emphasized was that even scenario-based training couldn't really replicate an actual confrontation in the street, as you knew role players were not armed with real weapons and were not really trying to kill or maim you. Further, the scenario-based training around the period Potter had received her new Taser 7 had been substantially limited because of COVID constraints. Ang also had Peterson agree that the spark tests that Potter had conducted on six of her 10 duty shifts prior to her encounter with Wright were merely recommended to be done on an every shift basis and not required. Nobody monitored if they were done and no officer was reprimanded for failing to perform them on an every shift basis. Ng similarly made clear that pretty much all the other policies around TASER use were conditional on the totality of the circumstances and were subject to officer discretion and competing interests. They were generally all of the don't do this unless you have a good reason guidelines. It was also pointed out that TASER had everyone undergoing or providing training to sign releases that freed the company from any liability for any accidental injuries that might occur, and that this was because accidents with tasers can and do occur despite best efforts to avoid them. Peterson agreed that a suspect fleeing lawful arrest in a vehicle is a dangerous act and puts the driver, the officer, and the public at risk of death or serious bodily injury. Peterson also agreed that officers were trained to make decisions because failure to make a decision could also result in death or serious bodily injury, and that it was important to make a decision even if that decision later turned out to be wrong. Making a traffic stop is one of the most dangerous things an officer does, Peterson agreed, especially as someone with a warrant for a gun charge. Officers can't simply let that person go. Further, there's a community interest in securing public safety by ensuring that unlicensed people aren't driving, that uninsured people aren't driving, that unregistered vehicles aren't being driven around. Similarly, for someone on whom there is an open arrest warrant for a gun charge being arrested and for enforcing orders of protection. Tasers were frequently used as tools for de-escalation to convince suspects to comply with lawful orders for the greater safety of everyone involved, and compliance was always what officers desired rather than having to use escalating force. Now, you may recall that Judge Chu had early in the trial ordered that Graham factors were not to be explicitly referenced during the trial, their law, the judge will instruct the jury on law. But here, Aang managed to sneak them into his questions in the context of asking about Minnesota's statutes on use of force and use of deadly force. Peterson agreed that police officers, no matter how well trained, were human beings, imperfect, and made mistakes. Finally, Peterson agreed that Potter had a reputation for being both peaceful and law-abiding. In total, cross-examination of Peterson took less than 40 minutes, in contrast with the prior day's direct questioning of him, which took more than two full interminable hours. Assistant DA Matthew Frank followed Cross with about 25 minutes of redirect, and as so often has been the case with the state in general, and Frank in particular, redirect came across as flailing and disjointed, and a rather emotive response to the damage inflicted on the state's witness by defense cross-examination. Also, Frank improperly asked almost nothing but leading questions again, apparently fearful of what open-ended responses would yield to the jury. Frank mocked the notion that someone driving without a license or insurance was somehow inherently dangerous, but Peterson affirmed that in his experience, people without a license and insurance also tended to follow the rules of the road not all that well. Frank tried to get Peterson to agree that it was inherently improper to taser someone inside a vehicle, but Peterson corrected him to say this applied only in the context of a vehicle in motion and that he himself had tasered people inside a vehicle. Then Frank tried to suggest that someone who might shortly put a vehicle in motion was the same degree of risk as someone who already had a vehicle in motion, and Peterson responded that he supposed it depended on the nature of the force used. Frank suggested that Potter, Lucky, and Johnson didn't actually have to arrest Wright. They could simply have let him go. That if a reasonable officer decides he can't safely make an arrest, he can use his discretion to not do so. And Peterson responded that that was one of many factors for an arresting officer to consider. These and pretty much every other answer the state got out of Peterson on redirect was of the, well, it depends variety. And that's not really all that helpful when the state ultimately has the burden of proving guilt beyond a reasonable doubt. Indeed, it depends is pretty much a synonym for reasonable doubt. Eng then got Peterson back on a brief, roughly five-minute, re-cross-examination. Eng mentioned that Peterson had been asked by Frank if a good officer was expected to do a spark test each duty day, and Peterson had responded yes. But isn't it also true that good officers also sometimes miss spark tests? And Peterson agreed that was also the case. In evaluating whether someone is a good officer, Eng asked, you don't merely look at their spark test record, you look at the entire body of their police career. Peterson again agreed. Aang also had Peterson agree that the reason officers distinguished their use of force analysis between a car in motion and a car not in motion is that a car in motion is unambiguously so, but a car not in motion is much more subject to the officer's discretion. Assistant DA Frankton came back for a brief less than four minute re-redirect of Peterson Aren't officers trained that it's dangerous for them to insert their bodies into a suspect's car as officer Johnson had? He asked precisely because they could be dragged. Well, no, answered Peterson. We don't train on that explicitly. It again depends. Frank was apparently trying to argue that somehow Johnson's purportedly poor judgment in putting his body inside Wright's vehicle somehow made Potter's use of force unlawful, which is an interesting theory of the case. Finally, Aang then got Peterson back on a 30-second re-re-cross-examination. During any traffic stop or other law enforcement incident, officers are trained and expected to assist and help each other. True? Correct, answered Peterson. And that was it for Sergeant Peterson in this trial. The next witness was... Uh, Professor Seth Stoughton, a law professor who had become something of an anti-police use of force expert witness gun for hire. You may recall Professor Stoughton from his retention as an expert witness by these same prosecutors in the Derek Chauvin trial. His direct questioning was conducted again by Assistant DA Matthew Frank. I won't detail Stoughton's more than two hours of direct testimony for the state, except to note that the state appears to have gotten what it paid for, about $10,000 in total, In Stoughton's expert opinion, there was absolutely no manner of use of force, either deadly force or non-deadly force, that was or could have been lawfully or appropriately used upon Dante Wright by Kimberly Potter, regardless of whether her fellow officers were inside or outside of Wright's vehicle when she fired her unintended shot, or whether Wright's car was stopped in park or in motion at the time she fired. Now, I will note there were several objections and at least one sidebar objecting to Stoughton attempting to definitively determine what Kim Potter's subjective state of mind was during the encounter with Wright. This is impermissible because Stoughton can't read Potter's mind. It is permissible to note what facts a reasonable officer might consider in dealing with Wright and point out the presence or absence of such facts, but that's it. Now, I have to say to my eyes and ears, uh, Stoughton and the Chauvin trial came across to me as smarmy and fake, but of course it's unlikely the jurors have my experience with Stoughton in particular or gun-for-hire expert witnesses in general, so who knows what their impression is. Stoughton did ultimately suggest that a reasonable officer in Potter's position could have simply allowed Wright to flee the scene in his vehicle, along with his female passenger. That would have been the conduct of a reasonable officer. After all, Wright could simply be picked up at a later date, given that the officers already knew his identity. This opinion would lead to a lengthy sidebar at the end of direct questioning of Stoughton, out of hearing of the jury, in which the defense argued that this opinion had opened the door to Wright's many prior instances of fleeing from arrest and failing to appear at court dates. Indeed, the warrant issued on the gun charge was a bench warrant for a failure to appear in court. The defense now wanted to admit into evidence what they described as an inch-thick record of Wright previously fleeing arrest and failing to make court dates. Normally, such evidence would be excluded as character evidence, but the defense argued that the state's expert had given the jury the false impression that it would be a small matter to simply let Wright flee and just arrest him later when the actual facts were that Wright would simply flee every time officers sought to arrest him. Indeed, Attorney Paul Eng promised to file a motion for a mistrial if Judge Chu refused to allow him to submit this record of flight and failed court appearances into evidence, pounding on the table as he did so. Ultimately, the court decided this record of flight and failed appearances continued to be character evidence and declined the defense's ability to introduce it as evidence in court. We'll have to see, I suppose, if Eng follows through with his motion for mistrial, a mistrial that would obviously be denied by the judge who had just declined to admit the evidence in question. The roughly one-hour cross-examination of Professor Stoughton by attorney Earl Gray was substantially weaker and more meandering than I had expected it would be. Gray has consistently delivered a very strong performance on cross-examination for the defense, but not so much with this witness. Gray started off by asking Stoughton to confirm that he'd suggested that What a reasonable officer should have done here was simply allow Wright to flee. And Stoughton flatly denied having said anything of the sort, even though we'd all just heard it. Frankly, Gray dropped the ball here. Stoughton is the kind of expert witness who, if you paraphrase his statement with one single word differing from the actual statement, he will flatly deny having made the statement, meaning having made the paraphrase statement, even if it is substantially identical to the actual statement. What he means is, I didn't say exactly what you just said I said. Gray's paraphrase was not a precise quote, so Stoughton denied the statement. And for some reason, Gray seemed unable to trap him in this slippery conduct. That said, certainly the jury heard Stoughton's original statement that allowing Wright to simply flee would have been the decision of a reasonable officer, while no amount of force by Potter under any of the disputed circumstances here could be lawful or appropriate, and hopefully they took note of Stoughton's less than honest denial. Gray also reasonably mocked Stoughton's claims to being a former law enforcement officer. While technically it's true, it appears that Stoughton's less than five-year career was mostly spent as either a trainee or doing paperwork without serious street time or experiences. Even that minimal experience was 15 years in the past. Gray also exposed that even during his brief police career, Stoughton had failed to attend assigned use-of-force training and had never himself been a use-of-force trainer. Throughout all of this, Stoughton again came across to my eyes and ears as less-than-honest refusing to answer direct questions with a simple yes or no answer, as should be done on cross-examination, and instead providing lengthy replies that appeared intended to deceive and mislead rather than inform. For example, when Gray asked if Stoughton had ever been a use-of-force trainer, Stoughton did not honestly answer that he had not. He answered instead that, well, he had use-of-force certifications. All this meant is that he'd been a student in some classes. When Gray asked again if he'd been a use-of-force trainer, Stoughton now replied that, well, he'd once written some use-of-force policies. When Gray asked a third time, Stoughton replied that, well, he'd written some reports on use-of-force events. This kind of shady evasiveness was constant throughout Stoughton's testimony. How much of it the jury recognized is unknown to me cleverly gray asked Stoughton about his retainer contract on this case and asked if it was correct that Stoughton stood to make up to a maximum of $50,000 on this case Stoughton once again answered evasively he couldn't remember so gray whipped out the contract and had Stoughton read that portion aloud in fact Stoughton stood to make up to a maximum of $95,000 consulting on this case now in fact Stoughton will probably make about $10,000 on this case, but that extravagant 95000 figure, the maximum, is sure to stick in the jury's head. So that was good. There was, however, a lot of value that I felt Gray left on the table during this cross examination. For example, Stoughton had spent about 30 hours arriving at conclusions on a use of force event in which Kim Potter had mere seconds to make a life or death decision. Also, Stoughton was not fighting a violently resisting suspect while doing his analysis. Gray did not mention this. Further, Stoughton had the benefit of multiple synchronized videos and some kind of laser mediated model of the events, uh, and obviously, Potter had none of that on the scene. Gray did not mention this. Further, What Potter's body camera would show under the circumstances was substantially different than what Potter's eyes, with their wider field of view and ability to rapidly scan around, were likely to have seen. Gray did not mention this. Furthermore, the screen captures used by Stoughton in his direct testimony at precise time points did not accurately represent the rapidly evolving, dynamic, violent, and dangerous environment in which Potter was making her human decisions. And again, Gray did not mention this. There were also some just kind of half-missed opportunities. For example, Gray pointed out that the new Taser model Potter had received just a few days before her encounter with Wright had far more black and far less yellow than had her previous model of Taser. And that's true, but Gray failed to use the actual models of taser as demonstrative exhibits to show convincingly how much this was the case. Around the end of cross-examination, Gray did compel Stoughton to concede that of the roughly 30 use-of-force cases on which he had consulted, more than 25 of them were cases in which he'd served a plaintiff suing a police officer in state or federal court the clear implication being that Stoughton is an anti-police expert witness gun for hire rather than a genuinely impartial expert. There was also a brief redirect by Assistant D.A. Frank and a recross by Gray, but neither really amounted to much. The final witness of the day was Arbury Wright, father of Dante Wright. He essentially testified that his son was a good boy. The defense did not object during this direct testimony, but only because they had a standing objection before the court at the start. Uh, It would look bad to be objecting to the grieving father constantly throughout his testimony. Uh, There was no cross-examination of this witness for perhaps obvious reasons. As court wrapped up for the day, it became clear that the state would be resting its case in chief tomorrow, either immediately upon court coming into session in the morning or perhaps after one or two more brief witnesses. In preparing to hand the proceedings over to the defense, however, the state had several motions and matters they wanted the court to resolve, two of which are particularly notable. First, the state noted that the defense witness list had perhaps as many as a dozen character witnesses for Kim Potter, and they objected to that number as unnecessarily cumulative, which is quite a laugh considering how much cumulative effort the state itself had presented in its case in chief. Nevertheless, the defense agreed to call no more than three character witnesses second the state noted that it appeared that the defense was planning to have its own use of force expert speak to matters of deadly force which the state found objectionable because there was nothing about deadly force in that exports report shared with the state the state thus claimed inadequate notice and wanted the defense use of force expert prohibited from discussing matters of deadly force entirely The defense response was that their expert was privileged to respond to the testimony of the state's own experts and other witnesses made during the course of the trial, of which the defense could not be fully aware until that testimony was heard. Given that this testimony had covered deadly force matters, the defense expert was therefore privileged to respond to that testimony on deadly force matters. Judge Chu was, in the moment, undecided on the issue and took it under advisement. And frankly, if it's true that the defense expert had failed to address deadly force in his own earlier analysis, that seems a rather grave shortcoming that should not have been permitted by the defense, a serious own goal by the defense team. Okay, folks, be sure to join me tomorrow at Legal Insurrection Uh, For our ongoing live coverage in the morning, including real-time commenting and streaming of the trial proceedings starting at 9 a.m. Central Time, Uh, then again at day's end, join us again, please, for our analysis of the day's events. Until then, until the morning, remember, if you carry a gun so you're hard to kill, that's why I carry a gun, so I'm hard to kill, my family is hard to kill, then you also owe it to yourself and your family to make sure you know the law so you're hard to convict. Until next time, I remain Attorney Andrew Branca for Law Self-Defense. Stay safe.